So, the book of Judges is a series of true stories that are written with the intent to show God's people God's grace and therefore to call them to faith and obedience. Michael Scott on The Office is the uh, Dunder Mifflin branch manager. Uh, once said this, I love inside jokes. Someday I hope to be a part of one. <laughs> what we're about to read would have been an inside joke to the people of Israel. They would have told the story, they would have read the story, and they would have laughed at it because the story is uh, intended to make those who oppose God and his kingdom uh, out to look ridiculous. And you may laugh as well as we read the story or you may, um, get, you may want to vomit because it's pretty gross. But it's also kind of funny. So with all that in mind, let me read this uh, passage out of Judges chapter 3, verse 12, and then we'll consider it together, okay? Verse 12, chapter 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him by Eglon, or by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all the attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud <laughs> went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there laid their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. This is God's word, believe it or not. Let me pray, and we'll consider it together, okay? 
Father, we would ask for you to be our teacher in these moments. Uh, Father, even, even just after reading it, it's, it's somewhat shocking to hear that this story is uh, in the Bible. And what do we do with it? And so we don't have any hope of understanding this apart from your Holy Spirit coming and being our teacher and softening our hearts and unclogging our ears and opening up our eyes. And so would you be pleased to do that in this time? We would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why is this here? I mean, why is this story in the Bible? It's, um, it's kind of like the Facebook poking feature. I mean, why is that still around? I mean, seriously. With all, the, with all the developments of Facebook, you would have thought they would have gotten rid of that. Anywho, why is this in the Bible? Well, I, I think it's in the Bible to primarily teach us one thing, which is the messiness of salvation, the messiness of deliverance. And so in order to understand the messiness of deliverance, we need to first see three things. And I've included an outline on the back of your handout there. You can follow along. We need to understand three things. We need to understand the unlikely who of deliverance, the unexpected how of deliverance, and then the unbelievable why. Three things. Unlikely who, unexpected how, unbelievable why. Let's go. First point. Let's look at the unlikely who of this situation. Here's, here's the story. God's people, Israel, had abandoned God, and as a result, God had handed them over to be slaves and be subjected and oppressed by this foreign nation called Moab. And at the helm of this foreign nation, Moab, was this dude named Eglon. And we don't know if that's his real name or if that's just the name that the author of Judges gave him because the name Eglon in Hebrew means fat cow. It literally means fattened calf, fat cow. And actually, and so, so obviously the author is ridiculing him, poking fun at him. And actually his weight, the king's weight, the evil king's weight is really a, a central theme throughout this story. Because if, if you think about it, it, it took a lot for someone to get obese in a poor Middle Eastern agrarian you know, society. It took a lot. So, so we obviously have this picture of here's this man who, was, uh, who loved his luxury, loved indulging himself, loved his you know, comforts. I kind of picture him as a more sinister version of Dudley Dursley from uh, Harry Potter or Jabba the Hutt for you Star Wars fans. Uh, this is, <laughs> shout out in the top. Uh, this is who... Um, uh, Eglon would have been like. And so he's got this army and they're oppressing Israel. And so Israel cries out for help. Help us. And what God does is he raises up this deliverer named Ehud, which is someone that no one saw coming. This is the most unlikely of deliverers for, for God to raise up to, to, to save his people. Here's why. Because in verse 15, it says that Ehud was left-handed. Some of you think, okay, no big deal. Why is Matt hating on the lefties? Here's why that's a big deal. Because, again, in the original language, it doesn't say that he's left-handed. It says he's unable to use his right hand, which implies that his, his right hand, which would have been the, you know, the strong hand for anybody, would, ha- would have been uh, crippled or unable to be used because of a deformity or a handicap or an injury or something like that. So, he, so here is this weak, crippled useless man in the eyes of the world. I mean, you wouldn't even want him on your intramural team. And God chooses him to say, I want, I want you to be the, the person who leads the victory militarily for my people. Chooses, it's the most unlikely 
of, of, of deliverers that you would expect. And here's what we have to see. God chooses to use the useless and the weak. God chooses to use the useless and the weak. And this is the truth all from beginning to end of the Bible. If you, if you, it's interesting. If you jump over to the New Testament, St. Paul is writing a letter to, the, to a church in Corinth. And he says, hey, I want you to just think for a second what it was like when you first became a Christian. When God first drew you to himself and called you to himself, think about what you were like then. And here's what he writes. I'm just going to read it to you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. All throughout human history, all throughout the Bible, God seems to be showing us this pattern that he only seems to choose people who are flawed and broken and weak and poor and messed up. Why? Why does God choose these people and he overlooks the strong and the put together and the the good people? Here's why. To show us that God is a God of grace. Salvation is of him. Salvation is of grace. It's, It's not based on anything in you. It's not based on human merit. God does not choose people and draw people to himself based off of their ability, based off of uh, their looks, based off of any sort of moral goodness that they may possess. Because it's nothing about, it's it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with you. It doesn't have anything to do with me. It has everything to do with him and with his grace. And, And that's the point. And so, if tonight you see yourself as someone who is spiritually handicapped, morally deformed, someone who doesn't get it right, someone who constantly is messing up, someone who is, is weak, someone who feels like, I, I'm trying this Christian thing, and I keep screwing up over and over and over. This is really good news. This is really good news for you to hear that, that these are the type of people that God wants. But on the other hand, if you're here tonight and you see yourself as you know, a, a basically a good person, put together, strong, this won't be good news to you. This will be offensive to you. Because you'll think, oh, I, don't want, I don't want charity. I, I, I want to come to RUF. Or I want to come to church. I want to do my Christian thing to get, get a little bit of instruction, a little bit more information, maybe just practical tips on how to live my life a little bit better. I, I need just a little correction. As long as you see yourself as good, the gospel, the gospel would just be maybe a little bit of religious inspiration, but it, it won't transform you. It won't change you. Because if, as long as you see yourself as good, you don't see yourself as needing a savior, as someone who to, to come in and rescue you from you and to totally renovate and fix your life. Because if you see yourself as good, you'll say, I, I just need Jesus to be a, a decoration in my life, uh, you know, a little add-on to kind of piece, you know, fix what I've got going, but I'm basically, you know, I got it together. As long as that's how you see yourself, good, put together, strong, the gospel won't be good news to you. If you see yourself as weak, broken, you know, morally, spiritually crippled, this is really good news. So the question is, which one are you? How do you see yourself? Are you the put-together one, good, strong, or do you feel like a failure? If you feel like a failure, the good news actually gets better. Because what God says is, through the story, is that he doesn't just choose to draw people to himself that are like that. He actually chooses to use those people to advance his redemptive purposes in the world. 
I mean, this is who God chooses in this story, Ehud, this unlikely deliverer to actually accomplish God's redemptive purposes, the most unlikely weak person that you would ever expect. Here's why this is even better good news, is because this means that you don't have to be a spiritual rock star in order for God to use you on this campus, in order for God to advance his kingdom through you, in order for you to make an impact in the world. You don't have to be this super spiritual rock star who's you know, always courageous, always bold, never has a fear, always has a sophisticated answer for any question, who always is getting everything right all the time. He can use people like you and me that are constantly failing, constantly messing up, constantly taking you know, one step forward, five steps back. These are the types of people that God uses to actually accomplish his redemptive purposes in the world. That's really good news. That's really good news. That's the unlikely who of this story. But if you think about it, that really kind of heightens the tension because you're, you're asking yourself the question, how, okay, how in the world then is God going to use this dude to de- bring about a deliverance for his people? What's the second thing we need to look at? The the unexpected how. Look back at the story. Verse 15, Ehud goes with this group of people to to deliver this tribute, which would have been like a financial payment that the king would have required. It would have been like a hefty tax. And so Ehud and his entourage, you know, give him the money, and they're they're leaving this palace, and uh, Ehud, the, uh, the... you know, handicapped guy, turns back and he, and he calls out to Eglon, Jabba the Hutt, who's, who's like probably out on this balcony of this, you know, second story where his private quarters were. And, and Ehud yells out, I've got a secret message for you. And because he's this, you know, he doesn't pose a threat at all. He's totally harmless. He's, you know, this weak, you know, individual. Eglon invites him up to have a private hearing. Now, here's what's interesting. If you look at verse 16, we find out that Ehud has a sword with him under his clothing on his right thigh. Now, here's, what, here's why this is fascinating. is because if you were right-handed, you would put your sword on your left thigh. And most warriors were right-handed, so that's just where everybody had their sword. But because he's left-handed, his sword is under his clothes on his right side. So this shows you that this is a well-thought-out, premeditated assassination attempt. And so he goes to you know, the private quarters, and he passes the security you know, checkpoint, because all the guards would have patted down his left side, because they would just respect it right-handed, you know, sword. So he passes through the security checkpoint with his concealed weapon undetected, and now he is alone in the private quarters with Eglon, Jabba the Hutt. And here's what happens. Ehud says to him, I, I have a secret message from God for you. Now he changes what he says. He says, now I got a message from God. And so Eglon stands up from his seat, maybe to, to you know, give respect for this divine message that's coming, and as a result, kind of exposes the, the billows of fat that are there. And it's at that point that Ehud you know, pulls out his sword from his, from his thigh, plunges it into his gut, and the fat just totally you know, encloses and cases over it and comes out the back, and of course, Eglon passes out dead. And then we get another interesting detail in the story. The dung came out. He poops himself. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so graphic. It's so gross. I, I read uh, one, of, one of the commentaries that I read tried to sanitize this by making it seem a little bit more less gross than it was. And it, I th- thought this was interesting. Here's what, the, here's what this one commentary that I read uh, says. 
When Eglon fell, fell to the ground and expired, his bowels relaxed and discharged their contents. <laughs> they discharged their contents. Okay, obviously, this is gross. Obviously, this is raunchy. And that's the point. This is supposed to be. Because remember, if you're an Israelite hearing the story, telling the story, reading the story, what you see is here is somebody who is this proud, cocky, spoiled king who is opposing God and opposing God's people. And look at what he's been reduced to. A pile of fat and blood and poop. That's what you get reduced to. But actually the story, the the tension heightens a little bit more because now what is Ehud going to do? He's in this private, you know, room, dead body on the ground, poop everywhere apparently. And if he goes out the door that he came in, all the guards are out there and they are, you know, going to see that he's killed their king and kill him. So he can't go out that way. And if he goes out on the balcony, that's a long jump to the ground. So he can't go out there. So, and he can't stay in the room because it's just a matter of time before they come in and see this you know, disgusting carcass over here. So what does he do? He does the most unexpected thing. It's interesting. Look at verse 23. <coughs> it says that he went out to the porch. Now, in Hebrew, it doesn't say the word porch. In the original language, it says that he went to the place of concealment. Now, that phrase is slang. It was a euphemism to mean the toilet. What happened was, is that there was a hole in the ground that this private chamber had had a, a person, he had a personal bathroom, and the hole in the ground is where he used the restroom, and Ehud escapes by sliding down the sewer to the bottom floor to get out. Sliding down, crawling through human feces, human urine to get out, and that's how he gets out. This sounds a bit like um, Shawshank Redemption. I, uh, I don't want to spoil it for you, but one of the characters' deliverance comes about by him doing the very same thing, of, of literally crawling through the sewers of just poop and pee everywhere and coming out just totally filthy. And now this story uh, just got a whole lot filthier, right? It's gross. Here's what we have to see. God brings deliverance through horrible, gross messiness. And here's the point. Here's the point that you have to see. God doesn't just bring deliverance from the messiness, but through the messiness. He doesn't bring deliverance just from the messiness, but through it. And here's what I mean by that. A lot of us um, find ourselves in crappy, messy situations where maybe it's, it's drama between you and a friend Maybe it's tension uh, within your family. Uh, Maybe it's just your frustrations with uh, your roommate or that dude down the hall that you can't stand. Maybe it's just the the chaos swirling inside of you of your own wounds, your own shame, your own secrets, your own addictions. All of that is just making for this really crappy, horrible, messy situation in your life. And the only way out of these particular situations is to go back through them. The only way out of these crappy and these messy situations is to go back through them. God doesn't call you to run away from the filth of your life, of your life but to actually run through the filth of your life. Here's what I mean. For example, some of you have chosen to room with uh, a very close friend of yours this year. And because living with anyone is hard, 
I'm married, and so it's hard living with my wife sometimes. It's definitely hard for her living with me. It's hard living with anyone. Because that's the case, you and your close friend uh, have gotten angry with each other, and there's been bitterness that's accumulated. And so now, now it's to the point where you don't even talk to each other. You don't enjoy each other. You don't hang out with each other. And you're basically just coexisting. And uh, so what are you doing? You're, you're waiting for the lease to run out so you can get out of the lease and just kind of move on with your life and kind of get out of this relationship as well. But what are you doing? You're avoiding a very messy and a hard situation. You're avoiding it. You're running from it. And as a result, you're losing the friendship. But what God is actually calling you to do is to run into the mess and the hardness of it, which means that for some of you, you have to have that hard conversation with your roommate. And it's going to be messy and it's going to be crappy. And you're going to come out the side, maybe out the other side, maybe banged up and beaten up. But but you, you will never be delivered. That friendship will never be saved unless you go back and do the hard work of entering into that hard conversation in the mess of that conversation. Only then will you come out the other side and maybe have the friendship intact. That's the only way to be delivered. It's not running from it; it's running through it. Here's another example. Some of you have to start processing the hard things about your story, the hard things about your life. Because I know, because I've talked with you, that, that you've had terrible things that have happened to you. Uh, some of you come from very hard family situations. Uh, you've got wounds. You've got shame. You've got secrets you, you don't want anybody to know about. You will never be delivered from those things. Never. If you don't do the hard work of actually entering back through and processing those messy and those hard and those crappy stories and those crappy situations. Because what will happen is that, is that you, if you don't go back and process through those things and pray through those things and unpack those things, which is going to require from you, by the way, reliving memories that you don't want to conjure up, retelling stories that you had boxed up and, and put on a shelf and wanted to never revisit, in order to do that, you're going to have to go through the messy and the, and the, and the hard process of doing that. But unless you do that, you'll never be free because... You will be controlled by your anger the rest of your life. You'll be controlled by your wounds, by your shame, by your addictions. You will be controlled by them. You'll never be freed. You'll never be delivered unless you actually go back through and process them. I mean, that's really why I do RUF as a pastor on campus is to have those conversations with you, to, to, to walk through your life with you, to process life with you, to pray with you. That's why my wife is, is doing this you know, with me. This is why Jen and Milo, our interns, are here. We want to talk with you about these things. We want to to process life with you. We want to pray with you. But if you don't want to do that with us, that's fine. But find someone. Find a pastor that you trust. Find a counselor. Find a close or or a trusted friend. Because just like Ehud, you want to be airlifted out of the mess of your life and say, I just don't want to go there. And I want to be airlifted out and escape clean and unscathed. And that's not the way that it works. The only way to have deliverance from it is to go back through it, to have the hard conversation, to to process those sorts of things. The way out is the way through. The way out is the way through. Let's go back to the story, though, because here's how it ends. Here's how it ends. The, the, The doors are locked, and the guards are on the other side. Ehud has just, you know, slid down the sewer, and uh, because the guards on the other side of this door can smell the stench of the poop, they're thinking, okay, he's just in there 
you know, doing his business. We can smell it. He's, you know, things are quiet. He's, you know, taking care of some things in there. So they wait. But as they're waiting, you know, Ehud has escaped, and he's out, you know, rounding up a, a huge Israelite army. And uh, eventually the guards wait to the point of embarrassment. They're thinking, okay, this is taking way too long. Nobody takes this long. So they eventually open up the door, and there they see, okay, dead king on the floor. But at that point, it's too late. Ehud has gone out, summoned an army, and they come in and just kind of wipe out everybody. And that's how the story ends. That's the unexpected howl of the story. God uses this man's weakness to bring about deliverance. Not his strength, his weakness. Furthermore, uh, it's unbelievably bloody and messy, which is unexpected too. So that's the unlikely who, and that's the unexpected how of deliverance. But still, I know some of you are wondering, but still, why is this in the Bible? I mean, it's so graphic, it's so over the top, it's so gruesome. Just why? Why is it here? Here's why. Here's the unbelievable why of the story. There's, there's actually two, two unbelievable reasons why this uh, is in the Bible. And we'll just look at these each at a time. The first unbelievable reason why this is in the Bible, why, this, why deliverance has to be so messy, why it has to be so graphic is this. To show you how committed God is to, to defending you. To show you how committed he is to defending you. In the 1980s, the Irish band U2 was doing a uh, U.S. tour. And it was at this point in our country's history where um, things were politically and socially very charged because there was a group of people advocating for Martin Luther King Day to be a national holiday. And so um, uh, at this point in our country, especially in the Deep South, uh, there were a lot of people upset about that. So there was racial and social and political tension. Now, you too, as you know, is very politically involved and uh, has very specific political opinions. And so they, they have a song that they were singing on this particular um, tour called Pride in the Name of Love, which is very explicitly about Martin Luther King Jr. as well as other social issues. So they were doing these big venues in, in the Deep South. And uh, before they were going to this one venue, uh, the FBI came to Bono and said, look, we strongly urge you not to do this show. We have received multiple credible threats on your life. We, we, you know, there's no way that we can protect you. You're going to be in an outdoor venue with 60,000, 70,000 people. There's no way that we can protect you. Strongly urge you not to do this. Do rock stars back down, though? Of course not. So Bono and you 2 say, no, we're going to play the show anyway. So they go into this night, and before the show, uh, they're talking backstage, and they, they're, you're having these real conversations of like, okay, this may be the night where Bono gets killed. Like, this may be it. Are we sure we want to do this? Yeah, okay, so they move forward. They're going to play the show. So they go out there. They're doing the set, outdoor venue, beautiful night, deep south, playing through the set, and they get to that song, Pride in the Name of Love. And Bono's, you know, thinking, okay, this is it. Like, this, this may be it. And so he gets to the chorus, first chorus. And it's this, you know, anthemic, you know, loud song. And so when he goes to sing this last, you know, the first chorus, he's thinking, okay, I'm about to go. So what does he do? Is he, is he, you know, gets to the mic, puts his arms up in the air, closes his eyes, and just belts out the chorus in only the way that Bono can belt it out. And, he, you know, he's thinking, if I'm going to go, <laughs> this is the way that I'm going to go. Singing this song, just take me out. So he's singing through this chorus, and he's getting through it, and he's getting through it, and he's realizing, I'm, I haven't been shot yet, as far as I know. And he gets to the end of the first chorus, and he realizes, okay, I made it. 
And so he opens up his eyes, and there standing directly in front of him is his bass player. His bass player had come over, standing between him and the crowd, and the bass player is standing there, staring down everybody <laughs> as he's playing. And Bono, as he's telling the story, he's, uh, you know, he says, when I saw you know, that my brother knew about this conflict, he knew about the risk, and he knew that I needed a defender, and he stood in to defend me, when, when I saw that, he said, I sang that song like I've never sung it before in my life. He just let loose. When you see that God is willing to go to any length to defend you from your oppressor, from your enemies, from that which is enslaving you, when you see that, that's what gives you the confidence to let loose, to give 100%, to, to, to think, okay, I don't care what insults I receive. I don't care what criticism I get. I, I, I can have that hard conversation with my friend or with my roommate. I can unpack and explore the hard things about my story. Why? Because I know that he is there and he is defending me at every step. When you have that sort of defender, that's what gives you the courage, that's what gives you the confidence to take on the world, to take on yourself, to deal with all of your own issues and all of your own junk, that's what gives you the courage. And that's the first unbelievable why of this story. That's the first reason, is to show you how committed God is to defending you. Here's the second unbelievable why, the second reason. To show you that you need a better Ehud, that you need a better deliverer. Because, you know, if, if you think about this, uh, look at the last verse of the story. Ehud's deliverance, it brought about a rest for 80 years. No more oppression, no more evil tyrants, no more bad guys. Everybody's been wiped out. It's a happy ending to the story. Two verses later, let me read you what it says. Chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Judges. It reads this. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Ehud's deliverance, it wasn't enough. It wasn't permanent. He didn't fix the real problem. The real problem was not their circumstances. The real problem was them. And just like them, our hearts are prone to wander too. And so we need a better deliverer than just someone who's going to fix our circumstances. We need someone who's going to fix us. And thankfully, we have one in the person of Jesus. Think about Ehud and the unlikely who. He was obscure, overlooked, weak. Jesus, as well, is obscure and overlooked and weak. He was not born in a palace. He was born in a barn, in, in a feeding trough with, like, gross, smelly animal crap, like, everywhere. That's where he was born. Actually, when you get to uh, John chapter 1, they're talking about where Jesus is from, and somebody says, oh, isn't he from Nazareth? And somebody's like, dude, what good comes out of Nazareth? Meaning, like, he comes from a really trashy, like, hole-in-the-wall place. Like, nothing good ever comes from there. In the, in the book of Isaiah, Old Testament, as it's talking about the Messiah, Jesus, here's what it says about him. It says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in, in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus is the most unlikely of deliverers ever. I mean, think about it. Here is a homeless peasant from some hole-in-the-wall village in the middle of the Middle East 2,000 years ago. And this is who God chooses to save the world. 
But think about uh, Ehud and the unexpected how, right? The most unexpected deliverance ever. It's totally backwards. It totally doesn't make any sense. God actually uses his weakness, not his strength, to bring about deliverance. The deliverance that Jesus brings about is totally backwards and totally unexpected as well. Because think about it. The deliverance that Jesus brings about is not through victory. It's through defeat. It's not through charging in and killing all of his enemies. It's charging in and being killed by all of his enemies. Now, how does that make sense? The claim of the Bible is that Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, wraps himself in all of your sin and all of your junk and all of your shame and all of your secrets and all of mine as well. And what he does is he goes and he stands and he gets pinned to a cross where he is undergoing and bearing the weight of God's wrath. Unbelievably costly, unbelievably sacrificial to him and a salvation that's unbelievably free to you. Your deliverance, his death, totally backwards. It totally doesn't make sense. John Stone, who was an RUF campus minister, uh, used to be an RUF campus minister at the University of Tennessee, he says, what Christians do is we, we extend to the world and say, this is your only hope, a dead, naked Jewish man on a cross. Like, and he says, that's our fastball. Like, that's the best we got. That's, that's the only bullet that we have in our gun is a naked, dead Jewish man on a cross. It doesn't make sense unless you begin to get inside of the gospel and let it get inside of you. And when you begin to understand that, you begin to understand, okay, God, that means that God was willing to go to any length to have me back in his arms. And when I see that God was willing to to go to the limit in order to get me back. That is what frees me to be weak. That's what frees me to feel like, okay, I no longer have the pressure to be perfect and put together. I can be a mess, and and I know that God still loves me. God is still for me. When you see that, when you see that God was willing to go to any length to have you back in his arms, that's really what gives you the courage then to start moving out into the world, to take on your own junk, to start confessing it, to start repenting of it, to start dealing with your own issues, to, to process the hard parts about your story, to have the hard conversation with your friend, to have the hard conversation with your roommate. Why? Because you know at every step he is with you. That nothing you can say, nothing you can do, nothing that you have done or are doing or will do will jeopardize his commitment to you. Why? I mean, the cross shows you. It, the bloodiness and the messiness of it shows you he was willing to go to any length to have you back in his arms. The question I want to leave you with is this. Do you know him? Do you know that deliverer? That deliverer that was willing to give up everything in order to get you, in order to get me? Draw to him by faith and rest in the deliverance that he accomplished. That's the invitation. Let me pray. Father, uh, I pray that you would give us faith to, to rest in the accomplishment of your son. Father, it, it is good news to hear that, w- that we, do, we don't have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to jump through religious hoops. We, we don't have to perfect ourselves for you, but, you, but you have come for us. And that's really good news because we can never come to you, not in of our own selves. We're so weak, we're so broken, we're so flawed. And so, Father, would you, would you give us the faith to cast ourselves, maybe for the first time, uh, maybe for the hundredth time, back at the foot of the cross, to be assured of your grace, to be assured of your love, to be assured of your commitment to us in the way that you defend us and deliver us. That's our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.